This is the Bigger Pockets Podcast Show 819. When it comes to broker and seller statements on insurance, you never take that statement for face value. If you're getting a loan, make sure you know what your lender's requirements are going to be on insurance. Also, find other multifamily, even single family investors who are investing in your market, doing what you want to do and say, hey, what are you paying for insurance? What kind of coverage are you getting? What challenges are you having? If you do those three things, it'll at least give you a good starting point. Looking forward three years, that's a little bit tougher. But if you have the right starting point, you're you're going to be much better off uh, from the get-go. What's going on, everyone? This is David Green, your host of the Bigger Pockets podcast, the biggest, the baddest, and the best real estate podcast in the world. Every week, we bring you stories, how-tos, and the answers that you need to make smart real estate decisions now in this current market. Today, we're talking about the wild insurance market we're in right now. We're going to get into how we got here its impact on different asset classes, what smart investors can do in order to protect their properties and themselves, and how the insurance market works as a whole. I am joined by my partner and friend, Andrew Cushman, as we are going to be talking to Robert Hamilton, an expert in the space. Andrew, welcome to the show. Good to be here, my friend. Yes, it is. And it's good to have you. You just got done surfing and now you're on a podcast. I'm glad that you're with me today wearing your uh, flower shirt. I noticed like this is the shirt you wear when you want to make a handsome statement. Brandon Turner, also our mutual friend, has a handsome shirt. His is made of denim. It's like the one shirt he has that has sleeves on it. And I know that he really wants to make a good impression when he wears it. So thank you for wearing your handsome shirt. When I'm talking to you, I want to present the best. Good to hear it. All right, so in today's show, we are talking about something that no one really gets excited to talk about, but everybody needs to hear it. This is the vitamins of the real estate world. We're talking insurance. Rates are the new barrier to entry in real estate. They're messing up a lot of deals. Current rates are throwing off even experienced investors from their game. Do not analyze another deal without listening to today's episode. Andrew, what's something that real estate investors can look for in today's show that will help them in their business? We kind of give a high-level overview of of you know, what the insurance market is and, and 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 how to navigate it, and we define some terms and and just kind of try to give investors, especially those who are getting into the business and hearing the horror stories about oh my gosh, insurance costs are tripling. Like, what do you you know? How do you understand it, and then how do you take that and move forward with underwriting and looking at new deals? And how what do you do to not let that hinder you from going out and making successful investments today? All right. Now, before we get to Robert, today's quick tip is going to be brought to you by Andrew Cushman himself. Yes. Today's quick tip is insurance is like a parachute. If you don't do it right the first time, you're probably not going to need it a second time. And so when we get to the end of this episode, we give you seven quick bullet point tips that you can go take to make sure that you are getting the right insurance and, and fully covered so that you can make a successful investment and that you can grow your portfolio and know that if, when that disaster strikes, you will be covered. Great job there, Andrew. And if you like quick tips, make sure you listen all the way to the end of today's show because Andrew gives seven more when we get to the end of the recording. This is a great one. You are going to learn things that you probably never even knew you needed, but that's what we do here at Bigger Pockets. We give you what you need because that's our job. All right, let's bring in Robert. Passive income without the property headache? It's possible. There's a way to invest passively in real estate and get monthly income without any tenants, maintenance, or property management. The Wealthy have been doing this for years, and if you're an accredited or high net worth investor, you too can collect cash flow without the headaches that come from owning rentals. How? By investing in a private real estate fund with PPR Capital Management. PPR's co-founder, Dave Van Horn, wrote the book on real estate note investing for BP. But he's not just investing in notes. Dave and his team also have an extensive background in commercial real estate. And with PPR Capital Management, they're strategically investing in both notes and commercial real estate nationwide. With over half a billion dollars in assets under management, PPR has provided individuals with a steady source of truly passive income since 2007 without ever missing a payment. Check them out at investwithppr.com. Again, if you're looking to get monthly passive income from an experienced team with a strong track record, go to investwithppr.com today. Deciding how to invest your capital can be extremely challenging 
especially when the market is constantly changing. That's why it's never been more important to partner with a company that has a great track record. The BAM Capital executive team has successfully navigated through the Great Recession, COVID-19, and the current interest rate environment while delivering maximized returns to their partners. BAM Capital is a trusted multifamily syndicator with over $1.3 billion in transactions, delivering a historical average of over 35% IRR with an average hold period of three and a half years. And BAM Capital has consistently paid preferred return distributions for over 50 consecutive months, has not lost limited partners' capital, and has not called capital past the subscription amount. BAM Capital's disciplined investment strategy is targeting undermanaged institutional quality trophy assets throughout the U.S. heartland for accredited investors who are looking for generational wealth building or monthly income opportunities. Their offerings target cash flow stability, capital preservation, long-term appreciation, and accelerated tax benefits. Join BAM Capital's over 1,200 investors across 44 states and get started today at BAMCapital.com. Again, that's BAMCapital.com. Calling all property owners and operators. Are you managing a multifamily property and looking to elevate your residents' living experience? Introducing Quantum Fiber Internet, your go-to choice for speedy internet your residents will love. The process is as seamless as Quantum Fiber service. Starting at just $50 a month, your residents can enjoy fast, reliable internet that will make them love where they live even more. Connect with your local fiber representative today. Learn more at q.com slash go big. I wonder how they got that domain. That's q.com slash go big. Limited availability. Service and rate in select locations only. Taxes and fees apply. 360 Wi-Fi and other equipment lease charges, taxes, and fees are excluded from price for life offer and may be increased. Robert Hamilton, welcome to the Bigger Pockets Podcast. How are you today? David, I'm great. How about yourself? I'm doing just fine. It's actually a really nice day today out here in California, and nothing catastrophic has happened yet. So fingers crossed. Knock on some wood there. Andrew, how's your day going? It is good. As, as you said, it's a beautiful day out in California. Just spent a few hours uh, riding some pretty amazing waves this morning. Now I get to talk real estate with you guys. Uh, we're talking about insurance, which used to be boring and now is, well, let's just say it's no longer boring. And uh, I'm sensing some shifts in the market. I think deals are coming soon. So I'm feeling about uh, as excited as a cat who heard the can opener. There you I'm gonna go. go. Go get some of that tuna you're always talking about, David. Yes, that's a great point. If you want to learn more about that, check out my book, Scale, where I cover it there. But uh, this is something that we had hoped we would never have to talk about. Insurance is not something that you want to be interesting. But when it becomes interesting, it's something that we're going to cover on the Bigger Pockets podcast and make everyone aware. So... Robert, can you tell our listeners a little about yourself? Sure. Yeah, I head up our real estate group here uh, at Insurance Office of America. Uh, I'm a regional managing partner, and kind of the way we're set up, we've got real estate pods uh, that kind of go around the United States. So we've got the Florida, Southeast, Northeast, and then we've got West Coast. We kind of act as a consortium um, just to share the knowledge that we all gain in this marketplace and put our heads together to try and fix problems, uh, solve some of the premium and capacity issues we're having. And, uh, you know, my specialty is in the, the multifamily space, um, you know, more more micro wood frame departments. So obviously we have seen, as Andrew mentioned, um, a, a huge shift in the market. Um, bad news is, is it is as bad as I've ever seen in 25 years? The good news is, is that historically speaking, uh, there's really no hard market that lasts more than about seven years. And we're about five and a half to six years into it. So we're hoping that that if the wind doesn't blow the balance of this windstorm season that we will start to see some plateau and then hopefully some relief and we'll kind of get into the uh, economics of how that'll happen from a from an insurance marketplace issue as as we go through this call today. Yeah, so personally, I've been destroyed in my portfolio. I bought a whole bunch of houses just as insurance rates started going up and I don't know an adjective to describe how shocking it was, how quickly insurance went up. If you haven't been buying, this might sound like a surprise to you, but if you have, you know what I'm getting at. I bought a house and it was going to be a short-term rental and it was an older home in a historic district really close to the beach in South Florida. My insurance quote, the best quote I could get was $26,000 for the year for a single family residential home. And that was after I spent a ton of money to improve the roof, make it hurricane friendly. I mean, it's crazy. And we're having problems in California. We're having problems in Florida. Hurricane Adelia hit South Carolina, Georgia, and Florida, which is which are states where insurance carriers have already started pulling out of the market. 
So let's talk a little bit about how the state of insurance has changed and how we got here, if you don't mind giving us a little brief history lesson, Robert. Yeah, so we can go through this for hours. You know, I've got charts and graphs I'm happy to share with any of the listeners, but kind of just from a 50,000 foot level, we, we have no capacity in the market right now. So everything that's happened over the last five years from the from the wildfires to the hurricanes to, to all this, the undocumented weather events, we've had uh, increased cost of construction. You know, Andrew can attest to, you know, four years ago, I could lose four units to a fire. It's maybe $30,000, $40,000 a unit with all the cities becoming incorporated, all the code upgrades, the increased cost of construction, the absence of labor. That same fire today is going to be three or four X. So you add all that together along with owners having to value their properties for a higher cost per square foot because the construction costs are higher than they used to be. It equals less carriers in the market with less capacity with the same amount of demand, if not higher demand, because of the increased replacement costs. So what is happening is these carriers are, are, are just at a, in, a, in a capacity crunch where they're having to, to cut their lines. And, and kind of what that means from a, from a real life example is if I've got a $25 million, 250 unit apartment complex, well, today it's probably valued at $50 million. And where I used to have one carrier that was riding my ground up coverage to $25 million, I might have two or three carriers now because no one carrier can put up that much capacity. Um, and it's a supply demand issue where less capacity is higher rates. And when the rates go up, we hope more carriers come into the space, creates more capacity, which pushes the rates back down. Typically, that's how hard and soft markets work. In my opinion, the only item that's a little bit different in this market that I haven't seen in prior hard or soft markets is usually a hard market is on the tail end of some type of economic uh, uh, event, which COVID-19 obviously was a was an accelerator to this, is the increased cost of construction. In my opinion, in order for this hard market to correct itself and get us back into a five or seven year stretch of a soft market where we see rates decline, more carriers come in, deductibles are lower, exclusions are less in policies, and just a, a general better uh, market for insurance coverage, we have to see these this cost of construction come down. So um, that's still to be determined. Uh, we saw some decline in it at the end of 2022, started to see futures on lumber and steel uh, start to hedge down, which typically follows in the market a quarter later. But then starting in 2023, we've seen roughly a 6% increase in material cost each quarter, um, more specifically in your mechanicals, uh, and those types of trades. So we need to see some correction in the construction market. And I think in doing so, that, that'll that'll be the outlier to, to self-correct this insurance market. Right, so, so Robert, if I were to like sum that up in, in layman's terms, it sounds like what you're saying is, you know, in the last few years, the carriers and the carriers, those are the guys that are actually write the check on a claim, right? When you say carrier. Correct. Yeah. Those, those are your insurance carriers, your companies. Yeah. So the carriers have just gotten slammed with claims, right? The the Florida hurricanes, the Texas freeze, the uh, California wildfire. So that's dramatically, you know, they're, they're, they're in a business to make profit, right? And so when they're sending out billions and, and collecting a few billion less in premiums, that's not what their shareholders are wanting to do. So their payouts have gone way up. And then the actual values of the buildings have gone up. And then if, like I said, if you have a fire and you go to your insurance carrier and say, hey, pay me to rebuild this thing. Well, now with the labor and the supplies, the cost to do that has doubled and tripled. Uh, and I know we've had that, you know, stuff that used to be a $10,000 expense is now 30 or 40. So you put all those things together and you're saying like, that's made a hard market and hard meaning just it's either the premiums are incredibly high or in some cases you just can't even get insurance. Um, but you're saying there's signs that hopefully that may improve here in the next couple of years, as long as we don't get six more hurricanes through Florida. Yeah, insurance, we, it's kind of like a bull and bear market in the financial marketplace, right? Our, we refer to it as a soft and hard market. And a hard market just means it is it is difficult to place insurance. It costs more to do so. The terms usually aren't as advantageous. But yeah, all the points you just hit on, um, you know, carriers are just, uh, they are seeing unprofitability. Uh, in the residential real estate space and where we used to have, you know, for a given asset, I might have 10 or 12 or maybe even 20 viable insurance companies or carriers that would provide coverage for the property. I now have three. And so when you've got, you know, when you've got a fraction of the carriers in today's market that were there five years ago, but the same amount of assets needing coverage, 
those carriers become overwhelmed with submissions. They're slow in getting the renewal quotes out, and they start to name their terms. They start to increase deductibles, add exclusions, uh, require increased valuation because they can, because they're the only carriers willing to put out the line or the coverage uh, on on any specific type of asset. And it, it's not necessarily you know A, B, or C assets. It's across the board. Each each asset space has its own challenges. But generally speaking, capacity is, a, is an issue for everybody. All right. So you're saying there's hope that uh, my premiums that went up 67% this year in a year or two, I might be, might at least get a flat one. Historically speaking, there's there's nothing to show. Just, just when we think the market can't get any worse, but we see no nothing on the horizon to show it's going to get better, that's typically when the market starts to shift. I know it makes no sense. Um, but again, if we go back and look at hard and soft markets, they all have a five to seven year shelf life. And this one could last a little bit longer. Um, but it's usually just when we can't think it get, can get any worse. That's when you have a couple new carriers jump in the market, create some new capacity, show the other carriers that are that are monopolizing the market that it is a competitive market. And you start to get the beginning of a reset. Um, it's looking into a crystal ball to know when it's going to happen. But you know, it, it just it, it can't continue at this rate without carriers on the sideline starting to gain interest uh, and putting capacity back in the market. Just my personal opinion and just, just based on, you know, historical accuracies. You know what? I'm going to start an insurance company and David, I'll insure you for twenty five thousand a year. <laughs> at this point, I can't say no. Yeah, we use Ian. Ian is a great example. You know, it came through and, uh, you know, the losses still aren't, aren't quantified yet. But it's a seventy five billion dollar loss event. Um, you know, we saw overnight, and when I say overnight, the minute the moratorium lifted from Ian Pass and some of the the following renewals we had were pulled, and they were requoted the next day for thirty and forty percent increases. Um, I mean, that's how knee jerk the market is. Used to an Ian would come through, it'd be the next storm season before we actually saw the impact of what that storm did to the market and how it affected the retail purchasers of insurance. Now the carriers are, they're, they're pivoting. When I say quarterly, some of their appetites and guidelines changes weekly. Um, so it's just, you know, I could give Andrew a, um, a projection on a property today. And if it takes them 90 or 120 days to close, shoot, the carriers I use for those projections, they, they might've completely removed themselves from the space or removed themselves from that asset class that quickly. So it's, it's very real time right now. All right, let's see how well I picked up the Robert Hamilton School of Insurance Education. Premiums are going to be a combination of a factor of the replacement cost and risk. The higher each of those things is, the more expensive your premium is going to be. Part of the problem is that replacement costs have gone up because materials have gone up and labor has gone up. And then I'm assuming risk has gone up as well. Is that a factor that we can talk about? Is it the storms? Is it uh, insurance fraud? Like, are there some things going on in the insurance industry that is also increasing risk for carriers that's leading to these higher costs for us? Yeah, I don't really think it's fraud. Um, I mean, there's there's always going to be some speculative insurance fraud in the marketplace, but it's not a needle mover. Um, it's just the global weather patterns we've had, right? It, it's not any one fire at any one location. It's not any one general liability claim at any one location. It's just it's just a global accumulation of the natural disasters and billion plus dollar events we've had in the United States over the last five years that's going through these carriers. Uh, most carriers have what's called an attachment point. So if I write an insurance policy for one of Andrew's assets and it's a $25 million limit and it's written with, we'll just use travelers for an example. They only keep five to $10 million of any loss in house and then they reinsure it out. And what's impacting these carriers is because of these billion plus dollar losses, these carriers are going into their reinsurance and, and via their reinsurance treaty, be like Andrew going into an umbrella policy. It it historically hasn't happened as commonly as it's happened over the last five years. So that globally is what's driving everything. And there's nobody that's immune to it because any carrier that has a reinsurance treaty, well, you know, if it's a if it's a subset of their writings that caused that reinsurance treaty to, to go up or to be impacted, that rate's going to be seen across every piece of business they write. So that's why this current market is so widespread. It's it's because the, the reinsurance affects every writing of every company. So that's not something I knew that's different. If I hear you right, 
it's similar to the mortgage industry where you get a loan originated with your lender and your head, that's just the person you borrowed the money from, but they sell that paper to someone else who sells it to someone else. And it continues to go into bigger and bigger pools. Yeah. You're saying insurance is similar where you get insured from a carrier. They have insurance to cover them. That person might have, it, it becomes inception. That's exactly right. When you look at every commercial on TV and, and every household insurer that everybody's aware of, the global writings they have, what they actually put at risk is, is is pretty minimal compared to the global reinsurance that goes into these programs. Um, you know, Ian was a $75 billion loss event. The actual carriers that, that, that wrote, like, we'll use your home, for example, right? Uh, who was the carrier on that house that you had? Yeah, let's just say it's Geico. That's a carrier that recently exited Florida. There's lizards all over Florida. That would make sense. Oh, they fall out of the trees. <laughs> if your household carrier in Florida is writing, you know, whatever uh, uh, PML they have with all these houses and they have a catastrophic event like an Ian, what they're actually paying versus what they're recovering from their reinsurer uh, is a small amount to, to what these global claims are. So it's these reinsurers that are that are affecting a lot of this because it's a direct expense to the carrier, just like uh, Andrew's properties insurance is an expense against his operating with an insurance carrier like a traveler's, their reinsurance trees and expense against their riding. So you add all that up, they've got to pay their personnel, they've got to pay their office space, they've got to pay their reinsurance treaties. An insurance carrier has to pay any operating expense like a normal business does. So, you know, I have a lot of clients that say, well, I paid $100,000 in premium and I had $100,000 of losses. The carrier didn't lose any money on me. Yeah, they did because they've got a 40% expense load. So every dollar of premium you pay them, their break-even point's probably sixty cents on a dollar, and a lot of people don't realize when you're looking at loss ratios and say, "Well, my loss ratio is only eighty percent." Well, it's still a twenty percent loss to the carrier. So, not to get into the weeds, but you know there are a lot of intricacies that go into you know the the, the rating, the underwriting, and and the the negative results that a lot of these carriers have seen based on some of those items. All right. So I've been in this do, dealing with insurance for a long time and uh, you just used the term that I'm not even familiar with. Could you clarify what is PML? It's it's your probable maximum loss. So ah. that's a lot of what's affecting Florida. And, and the reason a lot of carriers, I don't, I don't like to use the word redlining that just doesn't have great aesthetics, but in essence, that's what they're doing. You'll have a carrier going to Florida and uh, David, you could send them your same house today. And the first thing they're going to do is plug it into a model. They're going to see what kind of concentration they have in that zip code or within a five mile radius. And they're going to decide, Hey, we've, we're already, we already have way too much at risk in this consolidated area that, that doesn't have any spread for a cat two, three or four storm to come through and miss any of this. Ah, so one hurricane coming into that city could destroy everything versus if they're spread out over a bigger distance because these catastrophic events tend to happen in a specific geographic location, right? Yeah, I'll give you a perfect example. We've got an asset in the panhandle and we were in the process of replacing their wind coverage uh, before Idelia just came through. Idelia came through. Anytime a storm comes through, carriers put a moratorium out. What that means is while this while this storm is, is present, you cannot bind, change, or alter any coverage. You mean you can't get insurance the day before the hurricane? Unfortunately, no. We've, we'd had a, we've had a few clients try. So the storm passed. And so we had everything teed up, told the underwriter, I said, here's you know all the signed documents. Here's, here's everything you need. The minute this moratorium's lifted, I need this coverage placed. And that moratorium was lifted lifted sometime in the middle of a, of a business day. I, I have to go back and look and see exactly what day it was. By the end of that day, they were no longer writing business in that zip code because they had replaced so much business just that quickly that that, that their concentration was was over what they wanted in that area. So, so th this all sounds pretty formidable. I think I'm about ready to just give up and pull out the surfboards and forget it for a while. But I mean, obviously that's not the case. So like when, when, you know, I come to you or David comes to you or, you know, a new investor is looking at getting into multifamily, like, what do we do with this? Like, how do we, how do we, how do we underwrite, right? Like, do we go get a, do we get kind of a rough estimate and then say, all right, it's going to increase 10% a year for the next five years. Um, like what would, you know, what would you recommend at a high level, broad sense that, you know, investors who 
don't want to sit on the sidelines and which is never really a good strategy anyway. But how, how do you still look at deals, analyze deals and proceed forward, but factor in the relatively high amount of uncertainty that's involved with the insurance rates and premiums in the market right now? Yeah, no, it's a great question. I, I think the first thing you do is you, you break it into two parts. One, you, you identify as my asset cat exposed or not cat exposed. And cat exposed just means is, is exposed to a catastrophic event. And in the United States, we treat a catastrophic event usually as, as two things, a wind event or a fire event. So anything in the West has the propensity, you know, Colorado, certain areas of California, it has a cat exposure to wildfires. Anything along the the you know, let's let's say from Texas all the way around the coast up to halfway up the eastern seaboard where it starts to dissipate a little bit north of there, that's cat exposed to a hurricane. So the first thing I I would do and, and what I encourage my investors to do is first identify what type of asset you have. Is it a catastrophically exposed asset or is it a non-catastrophically exposed asset? We'll start with the non-catastrophically exposed because I think they're a little bit easier. Not to be irresponsible, but I think I would project out that this market might last another two to three years. And I would, you know, underwrite based on that. And I, I don't, you know, again, I'm not a real estate operator, uh, but savvy enough to understate real estate investments. I don't think you can ride out much longer than that. Uh, if, if you're projecting this hard market the last 10 years, I don't think any deal is going to underwrite properly if you're taking expense increases out that long. Is that a fair statement, Andrew? Anything past two years, you're really just making your best educated guess. That's exactly right. So I would encourage the the, the listeners on the call, the, the biggest thing that I see, and, and in my earlier years, I might have been guilty of it. You've got clients. Clients are valuable. They're our assets, right? They're what keeps us in business or what feeds our families and pays our staff. And the last thing you want to do is upset a client. So the biggest mistake I see is investors reach out to their brokers and say, can you give me a projection on this property? And the last thing the broker wants to do is scare the investor that, that what they're giving them is, is insane or what they're giving them can be better. So the biggest mistake I see investors is they get bad numbers for their performa. And what I mean by that is the, the broker underestimates what the actual insurance premium is going to be in hopes of not upsetting the client. So the deal goes under contract, you know, the, the investors, you know, penciled in $300 a unit because the broker didn't want to scare them off that it was going to be $600 a unit. And as the underwriting continues to, 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 to move forward, uh, you know, money goes hard, you know, loan terms start getting solidified all of a sudden at the last minute. The broker shows up with the quotes and says, oh, Andrew, I know I told you it was going to be $300 a unit, but it's $600 a unit. And I feel a lot of times it's one of two things. Either the broker's just not being forthcoming with his client or the broker's just not educated in the marketplace. And I'll use Andrew as an example. We underwrite a lot of deals for Andrew, 90% of which he doesn't move forward with. And that's okay because that's his responsibility to, to underwrite these deals. But we always try and evaluate, and, and I miss I miss the mark sometimes, but I don't miss it 100%. I might miss it based on the lender wanting a little bit higher valuation than we thought they'd want, or I might miss it based on the EGI being a little bit different, or maybe Andrew gave me the net rentable square footage, and we realized the gross rentable square footage is 10% more, and we, like David said earlier, we got 10% more values to contemplate. Those things happen, but you shouldn't be missing it by that much. Um so we try and take the big picture of where is this asset at? What's its crime score? What do we think the market's going to want from a replacement cost? What are what lender is Andrew using, right? Is it a, is it a, a Freddie Mac loan? Is it a hedge fund loan? Is it a lender we've worked with in the past that we know is going to ask for some nuances other lenders aren't asking for? And we try and build that into a model. And sometimes it's less than what's on the T12 from the seller. Sometimes it's more. Uh, and when it's more, we need to be prepared to tell Andrew when he says, hey, why is the current owner paying $50,000 and you just projected $75,000? Well, we need to have our bullet points ready to tell Andrew, well, they're insuring it for 50 bucks a foot. No care on earth is going to let you insure it for less than 100 You know, They're not buying wind coverage or they have a quarter million dollar deductible. It could be a variety of things that we don't need to get into. But I think the, the best advice I can give new investors is uh, don't be scared of the insurance market, right? Because, you know, even though cap rates aren't quite used like they maybe used to be used based on T12s, it still falls into the ultimate pricing of the deal. So don't be scared. Just just be be diligent in making sure you're working with someone who understands the market, 
understands the 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 debt you're going to procure for this asset and is able to give you an educated range of why it might be a or why it might be b and the liars in between that could move the lever all right so so i heard three things in there that i think every investor should should take away number one when it comes to broker and seller statements on insurance treat their state treat those statements like when your four-year-old says they don't have to go to the bathroom before getting in the car you never take that statement for face value right number one number one so always have a little bit of skepticism. Number two, and this is actually a whole nother topic, but if you're getting a loan, make sure you know what your lender's requirements are going to be on insurance. That can be something that can trip up your underwriting or trip up your deal. If you think you're going to get one kind, one level of insurance and then two weeks before closing, your lender's like, let us review their insurance. And they're like, oh, you need double this. Uh, that could definitely mess you up. And then the third thing is, is get a really good estimate. Um, and of course, you know, at this point, when I'm getting a good estimate, you know, we always start with Robert. But let's say if you don't have a Robert, you don't know a Robert yet, uh, number one, go find one. And then number two, also talk to property managers um, that are in the market that you're in and find out like, hey, you know, what are you seeing for current insurance rates on the asset you're managing? Also go into the bigger pockets forums and ask around, say, hey, every, you know, if you're investing in San Antonio, Texas, Go into the forums, find other multifamily or even even single-family investors who are investing in in your market, doing what you want to do, and say, "Hey, what are you paying for insurance? What kind of coverage are you getting? What challenges are you having? Are you having?" And 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 find out what other investors are doing. If you do those three things, um, it'll at least give you a good starting point uh, where your deal is not going to blow up because you underwrote three hundred a unit and it's actually nine hundred. Uh, like Robert said, looking forward three years, that's a little bit tougher. Um, but if you have the right starting point, you're 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 be much better off uh, from the get go. Yeah, those are great points, Andrew. And I, you know, obviously I live in this space like like every listener does, and you know we get um we base everything on per unit, right? It's kind of like everything ties back to what's the cost per unit, what's the cost per unit. One thing, and and again, not to get too granular, but one thing I would encourage a lot of listeners to do is use the per unit as your guide. Right. Totally, totally understand that. But sometimes you, you need to extrapolate just a step further. And I always have a lot of clients saying, why am I paying 250 unit on asset one, but I'm paying 350 unit on asset two? And they're both on the same policy. It's because of square footage. So so if you want to add an extra layer of diligence and what I mean by that is if, if Andrew has asset number one and its average per unit square footage is 600 square feet and asset number two's average square footage, square footage per unit's 1,200 square feet, everything being exactly the same, asset two is going to be twice as much as asset one because it's twice as large, twice the replacement cost, times the rate equals premium. So, you know, I, I sometimes see people get hung up on, you know, getting cost per unit, cost per unit, cost per unit, and then their asset doesn't hit that cost per unit. They don't understand why, and it's because, it's just maybe it's got a interior hallways or just a lot of common area. Uh, it could be older, larger units, you know, maybe two bedroom units that are 1,700 square feet. And the square footage is, is a more precise way to measure that. So when you are asking those questions to your peer group, like Andrew mentioned, you know, if you can get the details from the management company for similar assets and break it down to what's their average square footage by unit, that's one thing that that does move the needle a little bit. So again, not to get too granular, we want to keep this conversation today very high level. But um, yeah, it's 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 a component that's very important. And then I just want to circle back quickly to one thing we talked about before. If I have cat exposed phobia, where do I go in the United States to invest where I have the least chance of hurricanes, earthquakes, fires, and all that kind of stuff? Are there a couple of states you would recommend maybe people start? Yeah, so there's a lot of states that are more favorably looked upon than others, um, and a lot of it has to do with with surrounding litigation. Um, and this maybe isn't so much pointed at property, but it's just the litigation creates favorable and unfavorable markets. So Louisiana, Alabama, not great litigation states. Florida, not a great litigation state. Texas, bad punitive damage state. So going into some of those states, you might not understand why your insurance costs has increased. It's just because it's not a great legal platform for property owners to be in, meaning when you have a claim or some type of lawsuit brought against you, your insurance carrier doesn't have a great platform to defend. Uh, adversely, I'll use North Carolina for an example. North Carolina is a great legal state for property owners, just based on uh, uh, the 
the requirement to prove negligence, it's 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 a very good legal landscape. Carriers love North Carolina because they know that their premise liability claims are going to be much less in that state than any other state. All things stay in constant just because it's got a better legal landscape. So I can't specifically say that one state's better than another because every state's got good areas and bad areas. All right, gotcha. So I know some of the states I've looked at, you mentioned North Carolina. Tennessee seems pretty good, too, with low risk and low crime. Tennessee's a good state. You get a little bit of convective wind in Tennessee. Um, oh, meteorology terms. Yeah, convective winds, just it's non-name storm, so uh, tornadoes, wind shears. Uh, Tennessee gets a little, you know, across the northern Mississippi, Arkansas, into the northwest corner of Tennessee. They, they've got some convective wind, so there's a little bit of property uh, pain in Tennessee, but generally speaking, Tennessee is a, is a great state. Whether you need to buy or sell, or you're just obsessed with looking at homes for sale, Redfin's got you covered. Redfin updates their listings every two minutes to help you see new homes first. And they give you personalized recommendations based on the homes you like, so you can find a home that's just right for you, whether that's a cabin, a craftsman, or a castle. With the top-rated Redfin app, you can favorite homes, share listings with others, and schedule tours even on the same day with a local Redfin agent who can help guide you through the whole home buying process. And if you're looking to sell, Redfin agents have the experience to help you get the best price possible for your home. That's because they sell twice as many homes as other agents. With a listing fee as low as 1%, Redfin's fees are half of what others often charge, which means you'll have more money to put towards what matters most to you, like your next home. In fact, last year, Redfin saved home sellers $127 million. No matter where you are in your real estate journey, Redfin can help. Download the Redfin app to get started today. This show is sponsored by Airbnb. Did you know that a long time ago, before I ever started my real estate business, I turned one of my first primary residences into an Airbnb? And that's the extra income that I needed from Airbnb that gave me the confidence to go out and work for myself and eventually quit my 9-to-5 job. And now I have dozens of Airbnbs all over the country. I've even partnered up with the old David Green on a recent property in Scottsdale to take our portfolio to the next level. And of course, we host it on Airbnb. But you don't need to be a full-time real estate investor to start on Airbnb. As a matter of fact, I was self-managing 10 properties while working my 9-to-5 job, so I know anybody can do it. Think about it this way. You're looking for extra income and going on a vacation. Wouldn't it be great to rent out your space and let your property pay for itself while you're gone? I did this one time. I pitched my wife and my roommate because we were house hacking on the idea of renting out our home, and it paid for all of our expenses on a trip to Mexico City. So go and give it a try. It might just change your life just like it did mine. And I really do mean that. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. As home prices and interest rates continue to rise and inventory levels dip, it's getting harder to find quality flips and wholesale deals. When there's not enough on-market inventory to go around, it's time to start looking off-market. Lucky for you, there are millions of homeowners nationwide who own a property they need to get off their hands. I got two words for you, my friend. Prop stream it. PropStream is the leading real estate data provider and recognized as a Tech 100 honoree by Housing Wire for the fourth consecutive year. With PropStream, you can search over 155 million properties nationwide using 120 plus search filters like pre-foreclosure, bankruptcy, pre-probate, failed listings, and more to help you find motivated sellers in seconds. PropStream offers both public record data and an MLS sales estimate that's over 99% accurate to help you get the most accurate comps even in non-disclosure states. PropStream also provides lead automation, skip tracing, and a marketing suite with emails, postcards, and custom landing pages to close more deals efficiently. Get started today with their seven-day free trial and get 50 leads for free. Head on over to www.propstream.com bp. That's www.propstream.com bp. Andrew, you have learned the hard way how to navigate insurance issues. Uh, some of the properties that we are in together have had some crazy stories, which we will share for another podcast. But what are some things that investors need to ask about that you learned the hard way or put on their checklist when they are shopping for insurance? Yeah, I've definitely been learning through the uh, insurance school of uh, trial and error. I feel like Wisdom has been chasing me, but I've always been just a little bit faster. Um, and thankfully, uh, Robert's been there to help make sure I don't get too far ahead. So, you know, one of the things that we almost learned the hard way, and we won't get into the specifics, but this is, I, I, this is just to me a standout example of what the heck. And when, when you're getting into real estate and insurance, and if you don't know this, it 
it could ruin your day. Um, one thing that we learned is we did have a property uh, that was not in a flood zone, uh, but I had a sneaking suspicion. So we had flood insurance and we got a tropical storm and it flooded. And we had to go into the nuance of, well, was the flooding from rain or from a body of water? And Robert, correct me if I'm wrong, but flood insurance does not actually cover accumulation of rainwater. That's correct? The, the definition through National Flood Insurance Plan is it's an overflow of a body of water, period. Yeah, so that was that. That's a trap. That like, I had no idea that your apartment complex could flood. You could have flood insurance, but they could come in and say, "Well, it's because the water didn't drain, and it was just rain, and you're six that you're six, you know, you're sixteen miles from the nearest body of water, so it doesn't count." How do you? Is there a way to cover for that? Yeah, through private insurance, which is what we placed on that specific asset, which further defines flood to inc- to include accumulation of surface water. Okay. All right. Um, some other interesting, you know, we talked about crime scores. Um, and, you know, we used to invest in DeKalb County, Georgia, which is part of the Atlanta metro. And then one of the reasons we're out of there is insurance is getting really expensive and really difficult. And one of the reasons is crime, right? If you put, you know, some of those, some of those neighborhoods of uh, the crime has gotten really difficult. What happens, like if you're going to get, you know, let's say you're buying an asset and you're, you you get your policy, you, you have liability covered and you don't take time to read through the exclusions. What are some of the, what are some of the, like maybe the top three that you would pick that investors go and look for to find out if it's covered or not covered. Like, so for example, in certain parts of Atlanta, they will not cover uh, assault and battery, correct? That's correct. You know, so let's say that's number one. Could you think of maybe two or three more of the top ones that an investor needs to look look for to find out, hey, am I really covered or not and not assume that it's covered? Yeah, I mean, it's it's ever-changing, but obviously the biggest ones, you know, I'm going to use the word violent crimes. So making sure you do not have an exclusion for a violent crime. Carriers camouflage that a multitude of different ways. Sometimes it's an assault and battery exclusion. Sometimes it's abuse and molestation. Sometimes it's firearms exclusion. Sometimes it's a weapons exclusion. They have a lot of different forms they use to dismay that coverage. If you're going into some of these neighborhoods, and again, I'm not identifying a red line in the neighborhood, but if you're going into a high crime score area, as an investor, you potentially need to be prepared that at some point of your ownership during that property, you may not be able to get coverage for violent crimes. And I say that based on the fact you might get it on the onset and then you have two or three violent crimes at your location, you're not going to get it on renewal. Or if you do get it on renewal, the price for it's going to be so astonishing that you're not going to want to buy it. So that is a, I don't want to say buyer beware, but it's just something you need to be cognizant of. Um, some other exclusions we're starting to see, and some of them we can get removed, some of them we can't. We're starting to see a lot of human trafficking exclusions, hmm. uh, especially in the Atlanta area. Uh, I've got two clients right now that are in litigation over human trafficking, both of which we don't feel had any negligence or culpability in it, but um, you know the, the, the claimants who had been from location to location, whether or not at or against their will, um, I've got two of my clients in litigation over human trafficking. Uh, another exclusion we're seeing, it's called a habitability exclusion. Anybody who's owned an asset has probably had a tenant come to them wanting to get out of their lease or get their security deposit back or for whatever whatever reason made them want to do it, they make a claim against you. The unit wasn't habitable, whether it had, you know, water in it, bed bugs, whatever it might be. We're seeing a lot of carriers start to no longer defend habitability exclusions, whether or not they have any merit to them. So, you know, we could go down a list for the rest of this call, but what I encourage every investor and listener on this call to do is if there's nothing else you get from your broker, first off, you should be getting a, a summary that has all the policy forms on it. But if you're not, ask that broker, can I have a full copy of my liability quote? You don't have to be an insurance expert to read your list of forms and be able in layman's terms to evaluate whether or not that form drastically impacts you, i.e., if I have a list of forms and it says firearms exclusion, I don't need to be an insurance expert to know that my general liability policy doesn't have coverage for firearms. So 
get those forms, and I promise you, if you're looking at them, renewal after renewal after renewal, you'll start to understand how those forms fold into the policy, which ones work to your advantage and which ones don't, and just be a better a better purchaser of insurance for your property and your investors. Sorry, so for investors who are listening to this going, well, wait a second, if there's, you know, a shooting at my property, you know, that's it's sad. Obviously, we don't want that to happen, but how is that my fault or my liability? What'll happen is somebody who's involved will come in and sue you because you didn't have enough lighting, for example, at the property. And it was your oh, they'll, fault. They'll manufacture three pages yeah. of allegations. And again, whether or not they're, they're, they've got merit to them, you know, the, you're faced with Having coverage, not having coverage, settling or going in front of a state court. So that's why, you know, there's a lot of this stuff. It's like, well, wait a second, that's not my fault or my, well, that doesn't mean it still can't become your liability. The other thing, Robert, you mentioned uh, the word forms a couple of times. And when I hear form, I think of something that, you know, I fill out at the DMV or the doctor's office and they're asking me, list your closest living relative and like, I don't know, four miles and like to your office or my office. <laughs> what is a, when in the real, in the insurance world, what is a form? What does that mean? Yeah. So there's a reason that your, your policy, well, we don't really do paper policies anymore. We transmit them electronically. But for those of you who have who've owned real estate long enough to remember when you used to get your insurance binders, they're, they're that thick. There's a reason they're that thick. Uh, every policy has the forms attached, and those forms are the, are the contract for coverage. It's very tumultuous to go read a 130-page policy front to back. I've tried. I don't, I I'm not asking anybody to do it. But your cheat sheet is every policy is kind of composed of three components. It's got a declarations page. Declarations page is just it puts the policy effective dates, the name of the insurance carrier, the name of the insured, you know, the policy limits, just just the very high level overview of the coverage. The next is the forms list. The forms list is in essence a table of contents for that two inches of paper that follows it. Uh-huh. You can extract ninety percent of what you need to understand the coverage you have just by looking at the forms list. So kind of think of it declarations page, forms list, and then all the forms. Um, you know, when we look at policies or look at something for a client, I don't necessarily, if, if Andrew handed me a policy for something he's buying, I'm not necessarily going to read 300 pages. I'm going to go straight to the forms list. And by looking at that forms list, I'll then understand everything that follows that forms list, which what's good, what's bad, what maybe I need. If there's a warranty saying there's this policy has a safeguard that there's no aluminum wiring, I'm going to go read the aluminum wiring form to say, okay, what is exactly does it say? Does it say no aluminum wiring or does it have to be remediated? So the forms are there for the detail, but you can extract most of it from the from the forms list. I, I, I treat the forms list like a table of contents. All right. So that, that sounds like a really good tip. Um, yeah, I'd say, especially even for new investors, if you're trying to, number one, just kind of learn how insurance works, but also le- make sure that you got the right coverage, check your declarations page, because that's going to tell you all your limits, like you're covered for $2 million on this and 500000 on this and your deductibles this, right? And then your forms list, like that's a table of contents. So if you're worried about firearm exclusion or aluminum wiring or wind and hail, it tells you, okay, go, you know, it's, this is on page 635. I'm going to go look at, take a look here, but it kind of, it'll tell you, it gives you a high level quick, quick view. Yeah. Not quite that exact, but it is exactly what it is. You know, if you see a roof valuation endorsement on your property policy, well, I'm probably going to go want to read that roof valuation endorsement, find out if I got coverage for damage to my roofs. It's just, a lot of it is a lot more simplistic than you think when you kind of understand the mechanics of how an insurance policy is put together. All right. Speaking of roof valuations, deductibles. Now, a lot of us are familiar with, oh, I've got a $10,000 deductible or a $25,000 uh, or 100000 And I know one of the things that took us in the beginning a little bit longer to understand is a lot of these apartment policies, like if I'm buying a five-unit or a 10-unit, It'll come with a 2% deductible. That sounds great. 2%. That's nothing. Why is that absolutely wrong? Yeah. So anytime you see a percentage deductible, which is becoming 10 years ago, I'd have a carrier come in here, Travelers, for example. 10 years ago, Travelers, or five years ago, Travelers said, we're going to start putting percentage deductibles in all of our Atlanta apartments. I said, you're out of your mind. You'll lose every apartment you ride if you do that. I was wrong. Uh, because the market quickly caught up to them and where they put a 1% or 2% wind hail deductible on there, a lot of the other carriers are doing it. So and I hope no travelers listeners are on here. I'm not talking travelers. I'm just using them as an example. Um, but what Andrew's referring to is anytime you see a percentage deductible on your policy, it is a percentage of the values to which that peril applies, not a percentage of the loss. 
uh, case in point. Andrew's got a, a panhandle portfolio. Uh, I think we've got one asset on there. It's a $30 million asset. If it's got a 2% deductible, it's 2% of $30 million before coverage applies, not 2% of whatever the loss is. Um, you need to understand that. And, you know, Andrew and I, you know, going back five or 10 years when he started getting some presence in the, in the panhandle, we started talking about these assets. You know, my advice to my clients has always been underwrite your deal. Like you're going to have a loss, mm-hmm. right? Underwrite it, expecting a hurricane. Cause I see so many people go into Florida or go into the Gulf coast or, you know, Charleston, Myrtle beach area, whatever, whatever area y'all want to pick. I see so many people go in there and think that they're going to own something and they're never going to get hit by a storm. I see it happen to homeowners too. You have to underwrite these deals. Like you're going to get hit by a storm, underwrite it. Like you're going to have a total loss so that you can properly reserve and understand, even if you don't reserve or fund for it. Okay. If this were to happen, here's the financial impact that's going to have on me. You know, 2% of $30 million. Was that Andrew? $600,000? Yep. So, you know, that asset has a $600,000 wind hail deductible, not 2% of a $600,000 claim, which would be $12,000. That's a big difference. So you need to understand that. And it really is becoming more important because as the Florida marketplace obviously is being affected, what used to be a one or two or 3% deductible is now 5%, 7%, 10%. And the lenders are allowing it because the lenders aren't going to be able to loan if they don't allow it because people aren't going to be able to get insurance to comply with the loan without it. So, you know, we've got clients in the panhandle on some vintage C-class assets. Their their name storm deductible is 10%. It means 10% of their property values has to be damaged before coverage even applies. So one, two, three percent, life goes on 10%. It it becomes a cash event typically where you've got to go back to your investors and raise cash or you've got to procure some type of secondary debt because a lot of properties just don't hold that type of cash in reserve. This is good stuff. I'd love to just keep going. I want, but there's a couple more that I want to just quickly highlight for everybody. Um, And, you know, this is the stuff that when you're owning and operating, this can be the difference between a successful investment and not. Um, you know, it definitely, it's not as sexy and as exciting about how to get the next deal or, or, you know, all the tactics we talk about, but like this is the stuff that makes, makes sure that you don't lose money. And also, if you've got the right insurance, um, and we know this personally in our business, a natural disaster can actually turn into a windfall. Um, you know, we, we had a property that was good and it got destroyed by a hurricane and now it is fantastic. Um, so this, this is, this is key to good operations. Two other things I want to touch on really quick. Number one, uh, for anyone who's looking at an insurance policy, uh, one mistake I see investors make is they will go for a cash value policy to save money on premium. And because it's a lot cheaper than what's called a full replacement value proper, uh, policy. But the problem is it's exactly what it says. If you've got, a roof that gets blown apart by a hurricane and you had a cash value policy on it, they're going to come in and say, well, yeah, it's going to cost you 400 grand to replace it, but it was only worth a hundred. So here's a hundred. Good luck. Whereas with full replacement value up to the valuation that was, you know, when you, when you set the value of the property and all those other things Robert talked about earlier, they, in theory, they will give you enough to fully replace the roof. So don't, don't make the uh, mistake of going for the cheaper, uh, cash value. And then, Second, um, and Robert, I'm going to ask you to just clarify this if you can in like maybe a one minute summary. There's something out there called co-insurance. And I know this took me a long time to understand. And, you know, it's kind of like codependence in that it's one of those words that sounds positive, like, yeah, we're going to do this together. But in reality, it's a bad thing. So like what exactly is co-insurance and how do people make sure that they don't fall into that trap? Yeah, so uh, most lenders don't allow it. So any 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 listener who's got any type of of well, I take that back. Some community banks maybe aren't astute enough to understand it, but most institutional lenders aren't going to allow. It. But what it is is you're kind of at the mercy of the carrier, right? Because coinsurance doesn't define exactly what your penalty is going to be. All coinsurance is is it's a simplistically it's a formula where if Andrew decides I want to insure my apartment for seventy five dollars a foot, that's it in the discussion. Carrier says okay. You can insure it for $75 a foot. We're going to put a co-insurance clause on your penalty. And if you have a loss, we're going to come out there and value what your property should be. And whatever the difference is, is the penalty on the loss. So I'll give you an example. So if Andrew insures it for $75 a foot, the carrier comes out there at the time of loss. That's the kicker. You don't, you don't know until the loss because 
there, there's nothing written in it. Kira comes out there and evaluates the property and says, based on our replacement cost estimator, it should have been $150 a foot. Well, Andrew's $100,000 single unit fire, he gets paid 50 cents on a dollar. So coinsurance is a penalty of what you insured it for over what you should have insured it for. Very simply, that's what it is. You don't ever want it in a policy because it gives the adjuster the arbitrary ability to come value your property, and then you're stuck in a position to argue it otherwise. All right, Andrew, what are some other good moves for small investors to make? Do you have any quick tips that people can remember for when the show's over? Yeah. So, I, you know, again, we, I know we've talked about a lot of like hard stuff and it's kind of scary. And it's like, oh, geez, I don't even know if I want to invest anymore. You know, number the good news is, is like Robert said, this, this too shall pass, right? This is a hard market. It'll eventually become soft. Soft means easier to insure. Hopefully rates come down. But, you know, I want to give everybody seven quick tips as to, you know, what you can do to not only get the right insurance, but just kind of overall insure, insure, no pun intended, that your, that your investment goes well. So number one, you know, start in areas where there's less competition from larger scale investors. You know, one thing that we're going to find in this market is that someone who's got 2000 units is probably going to be able to get better rates than someone who's just buying their first you know, 10 unit. So try to find markets where maybe you're not competing with those guys. Um, and generally speaking, you know, if you're just starting out, you're probably not, you know, going straight to a hundred units, in which case you're not less likely to be competing with those people. So there is an advantage to being, to having scale in this business once you get there, but don't let that to deter you because odds are, you know, if you're looking at just getting started or you're just kind of scaling from maybe 10 to 20 or a hundred, you're probably just competing with other investors who are at the same spot. Um, so don't, don't let that be a deterrent. Second thing is, is, you know, again, if I was getting started today, to make it easier, I would avoid properties that carriers don't like. So I would, you know, look for properties in areas with low crime scores. I would look for properties that maybe don't have aluminum wiring. I would look for properties that, you know, probably that weren't built in 1803 and, you know, are a couple hundred years old and, and falling apart. Like look, look, think of, you know, if you were writing the insurance policy, if you were on the other side of the table, what kind of property would you want to insure? Put yourself in the carrier's shoes and then go look for those properties, right? That'll help eliminate a whole lot of this headache. Um, go to areas that you know the, the carriers like uh, is the third one. And we have Tennessee is relatively good. Um, North Carolina is relatively good. Uh, Robert, I know you guys put out a really good map of the United States. And I don't think your intent was to say good states, bad states, but it kind of showed like what states have what risks. If you could, if we could throw that in the show notes, I think that's, that would be instructive for everyone just to see, kind of like get an idea of like, oh, over here has this and over here has this. Um, so go to, you know, look for properties and areas that, that just don't have as many risks. Number four, again, put yourself in the insurance carrier's shoes and reduce risk from, from their point of view. So if you're either trying to get a new policy on a property you own, or if you're looking to buy a policy, look for ways to, can you um, maybe improve lighting? Can you reduce tripping hazards? Can you put better fencing around the pool? Just, you know, what small things can you do to eliminate the things that are going to give an insurance underwriter heartburn? Um, make sure there's fire extinguishers everywhere and that they've actually been inspected sometime in the last 10 years so that they're charged when someone goes to use one. Uh, number five, find an insurance broker that specializes in what you're doing. So Robert specializes in 100, 200 plus garden style apartment complexes in the Southeast United States. So he's perfect for what we do. If you're looking for 10 unit properties in Boise, Idaho, Robert's not going to be your guy, but there is a guy out there or a gal um, who is going to know that market, know your, you know, understand what you're trying to do. So go find that person. Try to understand insurance, but don't try to become the insurance expert. That's what you know, that's what a guy like Robert is for. Um, so go find that person who knows your market, your asset. Number six, this again, this is a bit daunting, but remember, it's not just you. Everybody in the industry is dealing with this with this problem. Uh, it's not just, you know, David Green is not the only one getting a $26,000 renewal premium on his house. That is probably happening to just about everybody else in his neighborhood. And so in that sense, it's a bit of a level playing field. Um, and the difference is, is whether or not you decide to figure out a way around it and overcome it or, uh, or be like a lot of other people who just will say, ah, this is too expensive, too hard. I'm going to wait until, you know, things change and it may or may not. 
Um, and then the last tip, this is one that uh, I owe this one to Robert. He um, saved our butt a couple of times, but we have had a couple of properties that were in large scale natural disasters, right? So, I mean, if you have a, if you have a fire in your apartment building and it takes out two out of your 10 units, it's basically just you and the carrier, right? The whole town's not in distress. But if you have a property in an area that gets taken out by a wildfire or has a, you know, century, you know, once in a century freeze that damages every asset, or like for us, you know, our, the entire town we were in got wiped out by Hurricane Michael, speed to filing your claim makes a difference. Um, if you're the only one in line, it probably doesn't matter that much. Um, but if there's 300, 300 other properties in the MSA that also got damaged, those insurance carriers are going to have way more work um, than they can possibly handle. And so for our property, we we saw the hurricane coming. We actually called. I called Robert the day before. I said, "Start the our, night before." Yeah, the Andrew night before. Said, file a claim. I said, "Andrew, the storm's not even there yet." He said, "File a claim." I said, "Okay." So I filed a claim before it even got impacted. I think Andrew got a call the next day, and I'm. It's like the freeze that came through the southeast around the Christmas time. The people who filed a claim that weekend were three months ahead of the people that filed it on Monday. So sorry to steal your thunder there, Andrew. No, but you're right, and because we we were first in line for the claim. We had a $250,000 check like within two weeks. Like, I mean, the, the insurance carrier, like they just said, yep, you're going to have a big one. Here's a check. Go get started. And so we started the renovations the next day and we are. And so we were first in line where there were properties that, that I was aware of in town that they didn't even get started for nine months. Right. So think of having your assets sitting there getting moldy falling apart, literally rotting for nine months before you can even get started. So if you're ever in an area that has a natural disaster or a claim that affects a ton of people, make sure you don't dilly-dally. Get that claim. So you don't have to have all the information. Just get your you know, get your place in line, right? So it's like Black Friday at Best Buy, right? You, you got to get there early if you want to get that TV. Um, you, 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 know, you may not know the details, you just, but you better get in line or it ain't going to happen. Great point, Andrew. I mean, you, you can, bad news doesn't get better. Biggest problems I see with claims that start them off on the wrong foot is when a, an insured tries to handle it themselves or waits to tell me two or three weeks later. Tell me the minute it happens. Let me let me be the one to decide whether or not we need to send it to the carrier immediately um, because delaying it just, like Andrew said, you got mold. Now you're arguing over the EMS. It just becomes a disaster sometimes. So. And you can always just cancel it, right? If you find yeah, out you later. Always, yeah. You can always withdraw a claim from a carrier. You formally withdraw it, they formally take it out. So basically, you know, the thing to take away is if you think you're going to have a claim, it's no harm in just in filing. You can always pull it back later. And then if you do really need it, you're ahead of the game. Good point, Andrew. And there you have it. The insurance industry is changing, but there are things investors can do to position themselves well in the meantime, and knowledge is power. So thanks for that, Robert. If people want to reach out, get a hold of you, what's the best way they can do so? Yeah, email is robert.hamilton at ioausa.com. And that suffix is our website as well, ioausa.com. Uh, you can find any of the partners on there. Um, and I'm always happy, again, where I where I can't be of service to everybody. Anytime you want to run a deal by me just to get my thoughts, I've always got five or 10 minutes to walk through something. There you go. You can check out the show notes for the resources that we mentioned today. If you like this episode, go check out the Bigger Pockets Ricky episode 307 where they get into how to protect your rental from fires, floods, lawsuits, and liability, aired on July 26. Also, great posts on insurance with other stories and situations like these that you can find on the Bigger Pockets blog and forum. So consider checking that out. And Andrew, if people want to reach out to know more about you, which I think they should, you're a fascinating person and the only person that I buy multifamily property with, where would they go? Uh, these days, I can often be found just past the breakers somewhere along the county, uh, San Diego County line. But if you're more of the digital type, uh, my social media platform of choice is LinkedIn. Uh, and if you comment on my posts, um, I actually am the person replying. So that's a good place to have a conversation about multifamily or the markets or whatever else is going on. And then if you'd like to have a call or uh, connect more directly, uh, Vantage Point Acquisitions, vpacq.com. There's a uh, connect with us uh, tab on the website and click on that and follow the simple instructions and um, we'll be in touch. 
What I love about you, Andrew, is you're insanely predictable. Like LinkedIn being your preferred <laughs> social media is about as right down the line. Yep. You look like a walking LinkedIn avatar. Awesome. So yeah, if you are using LinkedIn, go check out Andrew there. And if not, you can send me a DM on Instagram and I will get you connected to Andrew because we're best buds. And I talk to him all the time. You can find me at David Green 24 on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, pretty much everywhere. Or check out davidgreen24.com to see what I got going on. Robert, thanks for being here today. And everyone else, remember that you can tune in later this week for more great episodes, including a late starter's guide for anyone who feels like they're too late into the real estate game, Ryan Seiko's empowering story and his insights on long-distance investing, and more great Bigger Pockets content. Thanks again, both of you, for being here. This is David Green for Andrew LinkedIn Cushman, signing off. The market is changing and finding your way can be tricky. Rates shift, headlines whirl, but your goal hasn't changed. You want financial freedom and the best investors know it's not about timing the market. It's about time in the market. If you're ready to get into the real estate investing game or take your game to the next level, finding an investor-friendly agent is your next step. With BiggerPockets Agent Finder, you can find the right agent in minutes. Just head to biggerpockets.com deals and enter a few details about what and where you want to buy and bam! Instantly match with an investor-friendly agent who fits the bill. These local market experts can help you navigate the neighborhoods, analyze the numbers, and take action with confidence once and for all. This free resource is only available at biggerpockets.com deals. Get an agent, get the deal, and get closer to financial freedom at biggerpockets.com deals. That's biggerpockets.com deals to find your investor-friendly agent today. The content of this podcast is for informational purposes only. Past performance is not indicative of future results, and all hosts and participant opinions are their own. Investment in any asset, real estate included, involves risk. Use your best judgment and consult with qualified advisors before investing. Only risk capital you can afford to lose. BiggerPockets LLC disclaims all liability for direct, indirect, consequential, or other damages arising from reliance upon information presented in this podcast.